this this guy he's dirty he's his clothes are ragged but he just doesn't care anymore that's the Thoreau who comes back from that long walk and so purified clarified and it's just like okay now I know what I got to do and I'm going to do it no barriers Welcome to another episode of the Must Book Club. Today we are going to talk about the essay Walking by Henry David Thoreau. Our guest today is Laura DeSalle-Wells, who's a professor of English at Notre Dame, where she specializes in American transcendentalism, literature and science, and environmental literature. Laura is the author of the 2017 book Henry David Thoreau, A Life, the most recent comprehensive biography of this extremely important American writer. Here's the conversation. Why Thoreau for you? Mm. How did this person become yeah. significant in your life? Well, there's a kind of double answer to that, I suppose. I found Thoreau as a, an unhappy teenage girl who felt different from everybody else. And I didn't have anywhere to take that sense that I didn't fit in. And I started, um, I actually started reading Emerson. I found this little book of Emerson's essays in my dad's library and thought, wow, I don't understand what he's saying, but this is really I don't know, it was uh, a really cool way to address deeper questions. So I wanted more and I went to a bookstore and I found this other book sitting on the shelf next to Emerson and it was a guy I'd never heard of, Thoreau. And I pulled it off and started reading and just, I, I felt like he was talking directly to me. It was really kind of uncanny. And his way of observing and processing and asking the big questions about what are we doing to each other? What's happening to us? Um, has always fascinated me because there's a sense that it could have been some other way. And uh, his commitment to trying to uh, pull it in a more positive direction has always intrigued me, both, you know, kind of ethical commitment and uh, that, that sense that we can make a difference in the world that for him is not ironic at all. Where's the power in his writing? Mm. You know, we think of him as out in nature and his ability to observe the world around him really acutely and, and be, and you see that in, in the essay walking, to, to really make you feel a sense of presence in this environment, in the world that he lives in is, is a, something that he works on through his journals and you see his, uh, uh, you know, he, he literally does walk all the time and he's always writing what he sees and thinks and feels and who he talks to. That's just, it fills 14 volumes, uh, which is incomplete. Before he was that, before he was out in nature walking, he was actually in libraries reading and he learned um, something like, I forget now, seven or eight languages. And he read all the classics. He read all of, of English poetry. He read voluminously and constantly and knowing languages, like any word that he uses, he knows uh, where the roots come from, and he knows its usage in other languages, and he's fascinated by language. So there's not just the observational passion and the desire to merge with other lives other than his own. There is this incredible depth of language and learning that he tends to compress in certain ways. 
you can see it. I mean, his early stuff is almost unreadable. It's it's so academic. It's so wooden. It's just like he's so showing off everything he's read. But he, he sort of learns to subdue that and more of his voice comes out. And that's when the power strikes. Was there anything that marked him in his life that triggered that transition in his writing? I think there is. What happened was I was in a in the library. I was in the archives at uh, New York Public Library looking at something that very few people have looked at, which is this family album of nature notes, they called it. And the, the family would go see a bird or you know observe something and they would just write in this album. And it was really his his uh, older brother, John, who kind of was the, the person who put it together and kept it going. And after, and John, you know, famously a story I, I speak of is how close they were. And John was the one who was out in nature leading Henry um, around and showing him cool stuff. And John died tragically. They're in their twenties. And so they're both young men at this point. And it was devastating for Thoreau. And he goes into grief, you know, almost catatonic with grief. What I found in the nature notes was that there was a moment when he was just coming out of grief that he took up this book that his brother had put together and entered a note about finding partridges, a partridge, uh, partridge chicks um, that he almost stepped on. And then he, because they're so hard to see and he sees them and he bends down and he picks up one of the partridge chicks in his palm and he feels the weight of this vulnerable little bird um, which is frozen, trying to mask itself. And he puts the bird back down into the, the forest duff um, and watches them all as they just lie still. And he went back from that experience and opened this album of his brothers and he started to write about it. And you watch his handwriting. It starts out like I saw a partridge chick, just like all the other notes. And then he just keeps writing and his handwriting gets bigger and more jagged until it's just spilling down the page, just, just like a Niagara Falls. And he starts like the paper starts almost to, to get scored with the weight of his pen. And what he's doing is he's drafting the, the part of Walden where he talks about this exact episode and how he sees all cosmic intelligence in the eyes of the chick and his the, the combination of the vulnerability of the bird and his physical tenderness and connection with this wild bird and the bird's calmness and the kind of intelligence in its eyes just triggered, just triggered. It's a brilliant passage. It's breathtaking. And it's like nothing, nothing else in the album, but it's not even like anything else he'd been writing. And so that's, that's a moment that you know, it's good enough that it becomes a high point of Walden many years later. Well, what he does from that moment is he writes Natural History of Massachusetts, when he's not talking in belabored terms about ethical service to society or the kind of high tone stuff that he was taught to write. He just starts writing about these moments with John when they saw something, when he observed something, the kinds of things that nobody thought were valuable, right? It's just out in nature and trivial. And now they're not trivial to him. They, they connect him with something very deep. And of course they connect him to John. And so uh, that was the essay that he wrote that got, literally writing it wrote him out of grief back into the world. So it's, it's not a great essay, but it's the first essay where you feel the, the person emerging and the greatness. He hits some really high notes in it. How do you think Concord shaped him? 
Concord at that moment. Yeah, 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 deeply. I mean, it's a New England village. When I figured this out, I thought this was really interesting. It, it was the first inland settlement by the, the European, in this case, English settlers. So they were all hugging the coastline. And the first uh, settlement that was west, right? The first American west was actually Concord, Massachusetts. What's, what's kind of neat about that, it was so early. We're talking about the early 1600s. And it was really founded and conceived as an English common village on the model of a late medieval English village. It matured with a deep history to it. Number one, the sense of the commons, both a uh, physical commons, land that was shared, that, that was owned by no one, but everybody had a responsibility for it. Walden Pond was a commons in the woods. The Great Meadows was a commons. And, and so there was also a political commons in that the village was self-governing. It eventually became the capital of Middlesex County. And they had a, a, a town government where everybody participated. So you were supposed to be active in this commons Everybody knew everybody, everybody participated. You were supposed to be actively making the town better in whatever whatever they needed. Everybody got together and tried to figure out, you know, how to render such improvements. Somebody's house burned down, how do we prevent that? So they developed a kind of little volunteer fire department. People uh, missed the trees, so they got together and started planting shade trees. There were people who couldn't afford uh, proper food or to clothe themselves, so the town people got together and created a little kind of food bank and, and uh, started selling clothing for the people who couldn't afford to buy it. I mean, it was very much that kind of place and that's, and that's what shaped Thoreau. This was all disintegrating in his lifetime. Concord also played an interesting role in the American Revolution. How do you think that affected Thoreau? Well, it made revolution not only possible in you know, a theoretical way, but I mean, they lived it. They were still talking about it, his own relatives. His, his ancestors were on it on both sides, which is really, I think, interesting to think about. He had Tories on his father's side, uh, no, his mother's side, I'm sorry, um, and on his father's side, patriots. You, you couldn't say they were the bad guys and these are the good guys. They were both living lives and had reasons for, you know, being either a patriot or a Tory. And they and both these stories came down to him. I mean, you had to understand who was fighting the revolution, what for. And it wasn't abstract. It was his own grandfather and his own grandmother. These He didn't know his grandfather, Jean Thoreau, who fought. He was a mariner, so he fought with Paul Revere on the what would have been the Navy if we had a Navy. Uh, on his mother's side, uh, his mother helped uh, her brothers escape from Concord's jail when they were imprisoned as Tories. So, you know, revolution was something you, you uh, had as a family narrative. And I became so aware in reading sort of like around Thoreau and his friends, people he grew up with, that they really felt like the revolution had been incomplete and it was their turn to step up and start the next phase. What did that mean to them? We need to liberate America from England intellectually as well as politically. You, you see that in thorough writing about nature. He's interested in Wordsworth. He's interested in romantic literature. But he's saying, but it's different here in America. I want to have an American literature and it's unique. So that's part of the breaking away. But that's a writer's project. The uh, shared project for, for this generation was slavery the obscenity of having all men are created equal as the declaration that they were 
you know, their grandparents were fighting the revolution for, and then having a slave system that was part of, you know, fundamental even to the economy of Concord itself, even though it's in the North and so on, you know, it's, it's the economy, the economy. And so they, they, they started taking that on as a cause. And so Concord became uh, a center for abolitionist activism and Thoreau's own family. Almost all of his family were abolitionists. Thoreau never signed the card. He wouldn't have been a card carrying abolitionist. He didn't like to join formal causes, but his mother, his sisters and his aunts were. So it was a family affair right there too. And the sense that this was the unfinished business that had to be taken care of before anything else. Can you talk a little bit more about Thoreau's sense of freedom, both in politics and beyond? I mean, yes, there's the political side, and he involves himself with that. The, the more personal sense of freedom was that uh, we're colonized by other voices that tell us how to behave conventionally, how to follow the, the social rules that may not be sensible rules how to follow conventions that you haven't thought about and you just follow everybody because you think you have no choice, right? It's just, you do what everybody does. And that sense of unfreedom being uh, something that we do to ourselves, we're not conscious of it. We just fall into lockstep. And he was a very good boy growing up, right? He followed the lockstep. And this is part of what's really interesting is he wasn't a rebellious kid. He was a very quiet, observant kid. And he went to Harvard and minded his P's and Q's. But there were times when he stood up because he thought some injustice was being done. And that sense of injustice in the world grew on him as he got older. That sense that how are we implicated in these injustices? Does our freedom come at the expense of somebody else? Then it wasn't legitimate freedom. And that became the problem. It was a real problem for him, one that he worked on and thought about and tried to instruct himself on and, of course, eventually instruct the world through first published as resistance to civil government, but then became um, civil disobedience, was republished under the more famous title based on his going to jail for non-payment of taxes. So that, that forced him to theorize that sense of what is it to be free? Personal freedom, if it's really done so as to remove yourself from your own implication, your own participation in systems of injustice, that personal freedom, if you really did it ethically, would result in, in social freedom, community freedom and a political freedom. I wanna pivot over to your work as a biographer. What is it like yeah, to... Yeah to take that challenge on? Well, part of it is to not be intimidated by all the people who've gone before you and written biographies, right? I mean, you have to really believe that uh, there's more to be said and that you're the one who can say it. What prompted it was, this was about 2009 and I had just finished a big book, uh, the one on Humboldt. You know, I wasn't consciously casting about for projects, but I was doing a list to tell my grad students about, you know, things that American scholars in this period uh, should do. A to-do list, right, for young ambitious scholars. And about the item fourth on an old list I'd drawn up years before was somebody needs a new, to do a new biography of Thoreau. And I came to that item and I thought, my God, I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to tell them to do this because I'm going to do this. And then I looked at the calendar and realized that it was only like eight years until the bicentennial. And I thought, my God, I, I, that's not enough time. It takes a long time 
to do it. So I kind of went into biography mode like overnight and really, really pushed to get the thing done. It's a massive amount of work because you try to turn over every piece of paper you can. But in doing that, you try to imagine yourself into a life with as much empathy as you can without losing yourself, right? I mean, there has to be the critical distance, but trying to imagine, even when you don't like your subject very much, why are you doing that? If he's, you know, being an idiot, okay, you're being an idiot right now, but why can I understand why you're pulling away from a friend in a certain way or being cruel or abusive? And then they surprise you and that, you know, when Thoreau does something wonderful, like takes an unexpected leap, like the one I found when I told you about the, how the writing goes, just, just explodes on the page, then you feel the kind of incandescence of it. And I really feel that, you know, the biographer, you just, it needs to feel like it's never been lived before until you're living it with this person and it comes alive to you and you can do it justice. What were some of the surprises you encountered along the way that were unforeseen, let's say? Well, there was a few. One, one is that I didn't realize, it was shocking to realize how much of his life he was ill um, and, and deeply ill. At one point, I'm convinced he thought that it was the end. Um, and it was right after Walden, he went on to about a year. Because he had tuberculosis, which killed people and killed many in his family and people around him, neighbors. So that sense of, my God, this man who writes about health and is so strong and, and almost furiatingly uh, resilient, was actually fighting illness most of his life and finally succumbed to it, right? He died of tuberculosis. That surprised me because it felt intimate, and yet it felt like I'd learned something about human capacity to overcome low spots that I've never known. So that was one aspect. Another was the to see the hermit. You know, as a kid, I was drawn to the hermit, right? I wanted to go away and live alone by the pond. My gosh, there were people everywhere in his life. Um, he was the opposite of a hermit. I mean, he had a huge family. He lived in a house that was just a hive of activity. And he was involved with so many things. Um, and he's always recording bits of conversations with this or that person in his journal. And you start following the threads out. And you realize, you know, my first impulse was he was no hermit. I mean, look at him. This is the self-invention of somebody named Thoreau, who was a very different. And then I thought, no, it was, it's too authentic. There's a part of him that was always deeply protected. And I think it was the creative core that he went to Walden to protect and develop, which is the writer part. And so trying to understand how a person could be both so sort of sociable and yet be so prickly and cold and create barriers that then gave him the time to do the kind of creative work that, of course, ultimately made him famous. That was an interesting journey. That's not me. That was looking into somebody else and thinking that's, that's how it became possible. Is there a question that you would love to know the answer to that you couldn't find the answer to? Yeah, I, I suppose many. Um, uh, his sexuality is a mystery uh, because there's only a couple, three times he's overt about it. And it's quite clear that he was not heterosexual. But when he speaks of love and when he speaks of uh, in loving ways of another man, I want to know, like, could you ever release that impulse? Were, were you ever held 
in a lover's arms? I don't know. I, I think he must have been. How could you be human and not? But I want to know that and I want to know whose arms. And I will never know. I don't think anybody will. He covered his tracks on that one. But he was so passionate. I mean, underneath that prickliness, he's so passionate. But there are silences. Um, and part of it's Victorian prudery, part of it is the family burned stuff after his death. Uh, at one point, Sophia writes about burning all the family papers except for the treasure monuments to Henry. And it's like, oh my God, what, what did we lose? Would that ever have even been in those papers? I doubt it. But that's what I'd like to know. You mentioned to me earlier that of all the texts we could have selected from Thoreau, if we just picked one, it should be walking. Why is that? Walking was the essay that after he left Walden, after he published his first book, A, a Week on the Conquered Merrimack Rivers, and then he sort of had a falling out with Emerson and the book didn't sell and he sort of reinvented himself. He started taking walks first to reinvent himself. And then he wrote about walking and he gave this as a lecture in 1851. And so all through the 1850s, he kept working and working this essay. It kept growing and it kept deepening until finally, um, it wasn't until he was dying that he was making it ready to publish. He gave it as a lecture over and over. It was his favorite. And he told a friend that it was the key to his work, the key to his life and the key to his work. It's where he put all the thinking that was a statement of this is who I am and this is what I'm about in the innermost core of me. He kept adding and changing it through the 50s until finally he knew he was dying and, and he had to put it out there. This was his last lecture in a, in a way. It's like, okay, I've got one more chance to say everything that matters. Here it is. It's called walking or the wild. Okay, now we've got a question from Mouse Editor Brian Chappelle. Thank cool. you so thank you so much. Um, mm -hmm. I have a PhD in American literature, but oh, I also now yeah. teach high, high school, so I know Thoreau. Oh, you know, yeah, his, it's the Lord's he, work. He uh, <laughs> well, and Th and Thoreau seems to have found a place in the high school curriculum pretty solidly around mm -hmm. the country. And you spoke about how it spoke to you, how he spoke to you yeah. at that precisely that age. So I think that there's yeah. something to that. But at the same time, my question is, when we when we put Thoreau in the high school box. And we mm -hmm. and we put transcendentalism in the high school box. We tend to lose sight of the value of transcendentalist sentiment and thinking for adulthood and as a lifelong mm -hmm. practice. H how you would articulate a transcendentalist mindset in the 21st century, and what are the forces mm -hmm. that militate against a transcendentalist mindset? Well, I mean, I think you're right in that. The place in high school is both good and not good in that um, it turns it into adolescent lit. And, and there is. It, it spoke to me. But I went back as an adult because I was interested in natural science. And I kept thinking, wow, he was always out there identifying plants and, and, and really learning to observe that sense of the adult mind who says everything is interconnected. As a younger person, you're, you're very egocentric. You know, I want to be free. I want to be unconventional. I want to find my path. And Thoreau sort of allows you to, to uh, imagine 
what is the individuality that is you specifically, right? And how can you find a path that leads you deeper into the you that you are creatively? Then he seemed to me to be um, a good observer of both social systems and natural systems in the way that they were, were looping together at a time of immense social change where he saw one world coming apart and our world, the modern world, emerging. To pause on this point for a second, do you think that's one of the reasons why we should read Thoreau again right now? Because it seems like we're closing down one world and opening up another world. Yeah, there's there's a real, there's like a resonance frequency. You know, we, we have the sense that time is linear. So, you know, the farther away we get from Thoreau, like the distance grows. And I think I think that there's a kind of more of a spiral, like like there's a kind of weird way that things loop. And there's a way in which right now, I think because we're in a liminal or a, you know, maybe the bardo, right? One world dying, another starting to be born. Thoreau experienced that situation, watching the world that's now dying was being born. And so he has that sense of acute uh, disorientation that really resonates with our disorientation. And the whole point about going to Walden and saying, I don't know what's, what's up any, anymore. Nothing is making sense um, to me anymore. I just need to get somewhere and get my head clear and figure out what's real. That really resonates right now, just watching the headlines. And so that sense of, of a kind of non-ironic quest for something that you can put your feet on that does won't give way and yet one that's done intelligently not not easily but with thought that's so interesting i don't want to lose the second half of brian's question though about transcendentalism in 21st century well you know transcendentalism is is uh, i i was you know when, when i first started here it's like transcendence like you're you're up in the clouds the, the sense of the transcendentalist was not in the clouds, but on earth, seeing earth as part of heaven. I mean, that's the, the kind of sublime or religious or spiritual side. And there's a lot of that in walking. Uh, the opening where he's speaking of, of, you know, walking the holy land. And he means that. And that's the transcendentalism, right? That, that you walk not for exercise, but to connect with something beyond the self, beyond even the human. And Thoreau was wary of conventional Christianity. He didn't like to evoke Christian terms. His family was very Orthodox Christian, by the way. So he was, um, you know, he was the outlier there. But he was profoundly religious in his framing of the relationship between self and cosmos. So he tried to find another way to, to talk about spirituality without evoking like the Bible, which was like biblical terms to him had lost their meaning. They were more of that stuff that he couldn't believe in, couldn't find a grounding in. So there is transcendence there, um, but it's a transcendence that is uh, imminent in the world and available to us in the wild was his word for it, uh, as we see in this essay. So there's the transcendence. And for him, it took this form of being transcendence seen in the natural world that is right here, right now, all around us. And so always available, just wake up, open your eyes, and you will be there. You don't have to go far. It's right here. Okay, awesome. We have a question from one of our readers, Shaista. My question is, um, walking speaks a lot to being a person of action or being in the moment versus deliberating. Mm -hmm. 
And you mentioned that he was not a card carrying abolitionist, but he was like a large part of the abolitionist movement and the women in his family were more like the official. So mm -hmm. do you think that this was a result of a belief system that centered around action speaking louder than words versus symbolic mm. gestures? Yeah, yeah, I think very much so. I mean, it wasn't that he disrespected those who were card carrying. In, in part, it was women who, who founded the anti-slavery movement in the United States, I mean, as a grassroots. I mean, sure, William Lloyd Garrison uh, you know, founded the, the sort of platform, but what started to happen was women saw common cause with the enslaved and started to work creating an organization that could actually do some serious good, start to move the needle both in what people thought and in uh, how they conducted themselves politically. But it was women who were running the show. The, the sense that Thoreau had that he could help not by trying to take over from them, but by asking them, what, what can I do that you can't do because as women, you're not allowed to. So he would run stuff to the printers and he would you know, help with publicity and he would try to do behind the scenes work in the Underground Railroad you know, actually physically bringing um, a, a, a fugitive enslaved person to um, the railroad or shielding them, protecting them from harm. Walking, interestingly, was written in the wake of the first big fugitive slave case in Boston after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. And it's very interesting because he's in his journal for days and days, all he can write about is slavery and how unjust and outrageous and what a, a, a violation of everything um, that was just and good in the world was. He was obsessed with it. And yet what he stood up to deliver was walking the first time. And he apologizes and he has this opening that I feel I owe my, my audience an apology for speaking to them tonight on any other subject than the fugitive slave law on which every man is bound to express a distinct opinion. But I had prepared myself to speak a word now for nature, uh, for absolute freedom and wildness, as contrasted with a freedom and culture, simply civil, right? So there's a hook there that's very surprising that connects the two. As long as we're on the subject of slavery, could you comment on Thoreau's relationship with John Brown? Yeah, no, John Brown, you know, after the Pottawatomie massacre, things were coming apart in Kansas, and he realized uh, that he had to relocate his, his theater of operations. He started to think about, um, you know, the, leading the insurrection. He started fundraising, and he came through Boston, uh, came through Concord, um, and made friends with people there. Came through a couple of times, and the first time Thoreau uh, listened to him and was a little wary of him, uh, but impressed. But the second time John Brown came through Concord, Thoreau was, was ready to, to commit himself. John Brown was raising money, but he also, of course, wanted people uh, to understand and commit to supporting his cause. And so, yes, Thoreau had become one of those people. He did not join the Secret Seven or any of that. Again, he's a little on the side, but, his, but some of his friends were part of Brown's Secret Seven. You know, after he was captured, and all of that was playing out in the press, Thoreau felt that they were calling him a crazy man, a criminal. And Thoreau thought that this was outrageous, an absolute miscarriage of understanding. Brown was neither crazy nor a criminal, but profoundly sane and profoundly just. And Thoreau wrote a plea for Captain John Brown. And, and 
ended up giving it to multiple audiences, including to a tremendous audience in the music hall in, in Boston. And that triggered a whole wave of new thinking on John Brown as heroic, as um, the liberator. And it really literally started with, with Thoreau speaking in his journal first and then out to the uh, people of Concord to say, no, you're wrong. John Brown is the leader that we, uh, and we're going to sacrifice him. He turned him into a kind of Latter-day Christ figure. So that was bold. That was the boldest thing Thoreau ever did. And for a while, he helped one of John Brown's uh, conspirators uh, escape to Canada. That made Thoreau a criminal conspirator. And if he'd been captured, uh, identified and captured, he'd have been hung. Courtney, do you have a question? Do you think the the idea that he kept part of himself walled off um, allowed him to have this ability to observe the world in a more contemplative or observant way? Yeah developing the prickliness gave him the inner space to stand apart from and, you know, question people. I'm thinking both question individual people, people in his, in his life, but also question himself. But the silence, the space of contemplation then, where you stop questioning anything, right? Where, where you simply let go. And this is really huge. It's a lot of what he tried to do. Like these are walking meditations, right? Where sometimes he's thinking and he thinks I'm thinking too much. I need the space of contemplation that is not thinking, that is just being. But I think it's central to his success as a writer because the writing emerges from that space of silence I'm going to sneak one last question in. It's kind of a curveball because it's actually one of the members of the audience. But I happen to know that there's a a fellow here, Roque Sanchez, who has done several, several extremely long walks. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to be walking um, day after day, hundreds of miles. Uh, yeah, well, I guess, um, so I've done a couple, I'll probably do more in the future, I guess. So I did a, about a thousand mile walk across Europe and then uh, about 500 miles on the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm-hmm. I know it really is a meditation. If you're walking 20, 25 miles in a day, you just have to sort of mm-hmm. shut down your mind at some point, um, but also stay vigilant for like dogs and cars and uh, <laughs> bears and all sorts of other things. But there is, it's, I mean, I was, I was raised Catholic and I'm not not really practicing, but it's probably the closest thing I think I've experienced to transcendental prayer uh, mm. in some ways, because if your body is just hurting at some point, you've got to uh, just sort of shut down your mind and let your body do the work uh, and get out of the way. That makes sense to me. Yeah. There was a moment, it, it doesn't, I mean, I'm in awe and envious too. Um, I've always wanted to do the Pacific Crest Trail. There's this key moment, famously Thoreau had um, lost control of a, of a campfire and, and burned down a big chunk of woods in Concord. Um, and it was, a, it was a low, low point in his life. Um, and somewhere in the kind of mess of, of his life afterwards when a lot of things were going wrong, he took a really, really long walk alone um, he set off from Concord, walked up to New Hampshire and climbed a mountain. And then he went down, down the, I think was it the Connecticut River and out to Western Massachusetts. 
um, and then down uh, the southern end. And finally, he met up with a friend, and then they finally ended take, took the railroad back. But it was a long walk, and I haven't measured it on the map, but it has to have been a couple hundred miles at least. And he came back from that changed. His friend, when, he, when they met up, was shocked. Like, what happened to you? And he just, he was thorough. I mean, he went confused and angry and, and like, I don't know, hurt. And he came back and this is the Thoreau who goes to Walden Pond. The train got there the morning of August 1st, 1844. Yeah. And it was the, uh, they got, they timed it to be there for the um, anniversary of the uh, emancipation of slaves by uh, Great Britain, the West Indian emancipation, which was a big abolitionist celebration. And it had been raining and, and so they couldn't meet uh, outdoors where they planned and nobody knew where they could meet. So they were debating where and no, everything was chaos and they needed somebody to ring the church bell to bring everybody together to the same space so that they could have Frederick, Frederick Douglass was speaking and other people were speaking. And they've been forbidden to ring the bell. The church has disapproved of this. Don't you dare come inside this church and ring the church bell to call the town together. And Thoreau got out, it walked into town off the train, saw what was happening, barged through everybody, grabbed the bell pull and, and hauled on it until um, the, the bell was peeling and all and everybody came together. And a couple of different witness reports is this this guy, he's dirty, he's his clothes are ragged, but he just doesn't care anymore. And and that's the Thoreau who comes back from that long walk. And so purified, clarified, and it's just like, okay. Now I know what I got to do and I'm going to do it. No barriers. Thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to our guest, Professor Wells, for generously sharing her knowledge of Thoreau with us. We highly recommend her biography, which is easy to find either at any major bookstore or uh, it's the first hit on Amazon. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.